Great to see you all this morning here on this beautiful spring day. Is this a tease or is this the real thing? You know, if you're a Washingtonian, you might answer it's a tease, but let's hope that this continues on. It's great to have such beautiful weather. Um, If you have a Bible with you, I would ask that you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. And um, if you don't have a Bible, then we'd like you to leave right now. No, what you can do (laughs) is feel free to look at the screen behind me and uh, the text will be up there. It's good to have a Bible, kind of get your fingers used to the pages and the books and stuff if you're... uh, unfamiliar with those, but that we have the screen up there, and that, that is just fine. So however you choose to roll with that. But we're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Father, we just ask that um, as we get into this uh, uh, text today that it would be clear. It's, it's a challenge. It's not the easiest text in the world to preach on, but you put it there because it's a crucial, crucial warning. And you did this for us. And so, Lord, magnify your name in us as we understand what you're trying to tell us. And may we go out of here with this just um, really, really uh, uh, speaking to our hearts. However you want to apply it, it's up to you, Lord. Do that, and we ask it in Jesus' name for your glory and our blessing. Amen. 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 I'd like to talk about my mother-in-law just a little bit this morning, okay? (laughs) I had a good mother-in-law. I had a real, Debbie's mom was a real dear. She was a very kind woman, a very, very generous woman, and a very caring woman. And uh, I have the feeling, although we never took advantage of it, that we could have called her at any time for anything and she would have come through for us. Um, but she had, dare I call it an idiosyncrasy? I don't know what I would call it, but um, she had something that she said Somewhat frequently, and as she descended into uh, dementia, she said it all the time. And one thing that she said was, be careful. So when she was, had her faculties, all of them, you know, if someone was moving something in the house, a chair, a cup, be careful. And if someone was carrying a dish or a bowl of soup or something, uh, be careful. And there was the, it It was the hardest when you were driving her somewhere because if a car got close, you'd be careful and perish the thought that a semi would pull up next to you. Be careful. And it got more and more and more repetitive the farther she descended into Alzheimer's. She was a dear woman, but I'll I'll never get be careful out of my mind, okay? And if I really want to get under Debbie's skin, I'll say, be careful. And she goes, "Don't, don't say that. But as I thought about that, why does she say that over and over again? Because I think that that was her way of trying to protect us. I mean, really, I think she was trying to protect us from harm and keep us safe because she loved us. She wasn't trying to irritate us. She loved her children and her son-in-law and her grandchildren and um, I guess we didn't have any grandchildren. Oh, my sister's brother had grandchildren and, and she just loved them. I think the same is true with the book of Hebrews. I really do. Um, There's an abundance of warnings given to us by God in the book of Hebrews. Not a few warnings. They start early in the book of Hebrews and they go towards the end of the book of Hebrews. 
And God's not giving us these warnings because he wants to irritate us or make our lives miserable. He's giving us these warnings because he loves us and he wants to protect us from something so awful that words can hardly express what it is. He wants to protect us from great, great harm. He knows how high the stakes are for people. The stakes are heaven or hell. And he wants to protect us. In fact, in one of Peter's letters, he says, God is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to practice self-deception or self-delusion. He wants people to understand the truth and properly respond to it. Because he loves people. He created them. And God knows that many will not enter his salvation rest of heaven just like the unbelieving, some, most of the unbelieving Israelites failed to enter the promised land, or the land of milk and honey, or Canaan land, whatever you want to call it. Canaan rest after being in the desert. And such is the case here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. As the writer continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the second part of a warning that started in chapter 3, verse 7 through 19 last week. And that warning was, if you remember, if you were here, do not harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Whatever you do, don't harden your heart to God, to Jesus. See, many of these New Testament Jews here knew, that this uh, writer is writing to knew the basics of the gospel. They understood the basics of the gospel. Okay, They understood them, but the problem was that they understood them mentally or academically or theologically, but ultimately they didn't fully trust in Christ inwardly. They only committed themselves partially to Christ for salvation, which is no commitment at all. And so they were being warned to make sure that their faith was genuine by believing and persevering and holding fast to Jesus and make sure their commitment was genuine and authentic and would last to the very end of their life. They could be called cultural believers or therapeutic believers or intellectual believers or theological believers, but they were not true believers. And they were in danger of being shocked on the day of judgment. Did you know there is a day of judgment? There's a day of judgment for believers. This is uh, based on how we live our lives for Christ in this life, but there's a day of judgment for the unbeliever. And God doesn't want people unprepared for the great day of judgment, especially those that are in the church. And unfortunately, that's gonna happen um, with sad regularity, okay? So here's what happened. These Hebrew Christians, for the most part, in this church in Italy, had made a commitment to Christ. But as persecution rose, as problems surfaced, as pain developed in their lives, they began to question whether they really wanted to keep on keeping on for Jesus. They thought like the Israelites in the desert, you know, back in Egypt it was a lot better than it is now. I didn't have any problems back in Egypt. You know, see how we can delude ourselves. They had a lot of problems back in Egypt. And you know, it's just a lot easier to go back. I'm more accepted by my friends, by Rome. I had plenty to eat. I was never felt like I was in danger. I didn't have to worry about being persecuted. And after starting strong and with a splash in their relationship with Christ, they're now starting to fall away from their initial decision to follow Jesus as Messiah. 
And again, they were starting to long for their, their previous life of Judaism, and they were in danger of halting at the crucial point of a genuine decision or commitment to Jesus and turning back. It's more convenient, it's more comfortable and safer than the life that they had now. And thus the warning last week, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart against Jesus. It's a danger, okay? So don't do that. We saw that in chapter three, verse seven through 19. Okay, they were tempted to go back. So much less of a hassle to go back than to keep on keeping on with Jesus. And like many who claim belief in Jesus Christ, they were in danger of forfeiting their heavenly rest by turning back, by not persevering. I want to make one thing clear before we go on into this text, is that once a person is saved, they're saved. Once saved, always saved. That's not the question, can you lose your salvation? The question is, have we had it to begin with? And the way that we can tell that we had genuine salvation is that we persevere in our relationship with Jesus all the way to the end. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. You can't lose it, but did you ever have it? That's the question. We don't get saved by persevering, but perseverance shows that we are saved. Okay. They started strong, but they weren't finishing well, proving that their conversion was perhaps, as the old-time writers used to say, spurious. It really wasn't genuine or authentic. And the consequences are terrible, and that's why um, this warning comes about in the book of Hebrews, okay? And so the second part of that warning is found in verse, uh, chapter four, verses one through 13. And the title of the message today comes right out of the, these verses, and that is this. Warning, be careful to enter into God's rest. Warning, be careful to enter into God's rest, okay? Now remember something as we get into this text. This is a New Testament church, just like ours in the New Testament era, so to speak, if you will, okay? And I don't say this with any relish or excitement or enthusiasm, and I'm not trying to poke a stick in anybody's eye, but people can hide out in a church all their lives and never truly have given the throne of their heart to Christ. And that's what we want to avoid. That's why this loving but very penetrating warning here. Be careful to enter into God's rest. And we're gonna look at this text today from the viewpoint or the vantage point of three questions. Number one, why should we be careful to enter into God's rest? Why? Why should we be careful? Look at verse one. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So why should we be careful to enter into God's rest? Because we can fall short of it. Now, now, first, back up the truck a little bit. What does the word rest here mean? Okay, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now, truthfully, gotta be straight up with you guys, there are not a few pastors and scholars that uh, use the word rest here to describe how Christians can experience God's peace or rest in the face of trials in this life. And they might use a, uh, a verse or verses like Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 where Jesus said, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly of heart 
and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that's a valid point. No matter what trials, troubles, tribulations, traumas we go through in this life, we're promised by God through the Holy Spirit that we can have a peace and a rest through those things. And that's a good interpretation as a secondary application. But after studying this and looking at the context of this passage, I don't think that's what it means. I don't think it's what it means at all. Someone said, uh, a text without a context is a pretext. And it is. And given the whole context of what goes before this chapter or this, this passage and what goes after, I have to conclude that that's not what it's talking about. As true as it is that we will get rest from the Holy Spirit as we need it through life. I think it's something far different than that, okay? And this rest here, I believe, is a synonym for heaven. Heaven. Let me prove my point, okay? Don't doubt me too much. But I think it's a synonym for heaven. And by the way, there are lots of Bible scholars and pastors that interpret it this way. And it's a good thing that they agree with me, isn't it? You know? So rest is a synonym for heaven. Now there are a lot of words that are used for heaven uh, in the Bible and outside of the Bible. Let me read some of them to you. Glory or glory land, promised land, immortality, paradise, Canaan, Zion, bliss, eternity, felicity, glory, uh, the hereafter. Uh, There's some here I... I wouldn't read, but eternal home, eternal rest. I gotta read this one even though it's not in the Bible. Happy hunting ground, okay. Um, Life everlasting, the pearly gates, you know. Those are some of the words, but I like rest. I'm looking forward to resting, how about you? Does not, listen, look at me. Doesn't rest seem elusive today? It's so elusive. I just like to rest a little bit. You ever find yourself saying that? I just like to rest. Well, that's what the word here means. Rest means complete rest when we get to be with the Lord in heaven, okay? Let me share with you what this word means, okay? Rest can mean complete and permanent freedom from whatever worries us. Oh, you ever find yourself worrying? No, I'm worried about that. If, you're gonna, if, you don't, if you don't find yourself worrying, I'm sorry, I don't care how spiritual you are. It's hard not to worry, isn't it? It's hard not to be anxious. It's, not, it's hard not to feel that in your chest, you know, after you watch the evening news. Huh? It's just easy to worry and to be anxious. I, I like the word angst. It's just so easy. You know, in heaven, we'll never worry about anything ever again. Never. It, it, it means freedom for whatever disturbs us. Complete freedom. It mean, this word rest here mean, in heaven means freedom from the sins that threaten and badger us. I wonder what it's like not to have a sin threaten and badger me. Well, it'll ha- that'll be there, our rest period in heaven that goes on for eternity. The word rest here can mean to be in complete peace with God. The complete, excuse me, absence of fear. The complete absence of fear. That's what rest means. 
the absence of fear, the complete freedom from guilt, a total understanding of God's forgiveness, not just partial. You know, we throw that verse out, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we cling onto that, we hold onto that, we grab onto that, we clutch to that, we scratch and claw and try to get that into our hearts when we fail God and God gives us that grace and sense of forgiveness. Then we'll have that permanently and to a complete degree. I know, woohoo is amen and whatever you want to say, you know. I'm with that. And then the word rest can mean a completely quiet, composed, settled confidence in the security and satisfaction with God. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. If you want a, a complete opposite of that, it's the world we're living in right now. Okay. Now, again, people preach this word rest as the temporary rest that the Holy Spirit gives us when we're under trials. And again, as an application of this, it's certainly true. But I think it's talking about heaven because really all the things that we're talking about, the worries and hassles and trials while on earth in this life that can cause us, causes our rest to fluctuate. It's never just always smooth sailing. But in heaven, will have an eternal rest, and I just have to share this verse with you. Revelation 14, 13 and 14. This, this is heaven. I, I always back up my points with scripture, so if you're gonna argue, you can argue with God, not me, okay? Then I heard a voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Heaven's a place of rest. And it doesn't mean we're not gonna be productive and active and our potential won't be maximized. All of that's true. But we're gonna be in a state of rest. You know, you could do, if you, you can be really active and resting at the same time. If you're doing something that you really enjoy, let's say a hobby or something, and it doesn't tire you out, it rejuvenates you. You can be active and resting at the same time. The eternal perfect rest of heaven. Canaan, the promised land, the land of milk and honey, right, was a picture of this heavenly rest. But these Hebrew believers, or apparent believers, were facing a danger when it came to entering God's eternal rest. Was it the danger of losing their eternal salvation? Certainly not. No, it was the danger of falling short of God's rest in the first place. And, you know... God loves us so much. Listen, guys, God loves you and I so much that he doesn't want one person in the church to, to be under the spirit of self-delusion or self-deception given their salvation. Amen? Amen? He doesn't want anybody fooling themselves, and people fool themselves, don't they? And you can darken the door of a church for eons, but way deep down inside, not surrender to the lordship, leadership, rulership, control of Jesus Christ. You can know all about Jesus, but he, can't be the, he may not be the CEO of your heart. And that's the danger that he's, he's trying to, to, to point out here. Uh, you can fall short of God's rest if you're not careful. And that's why we need to be careful to enter into God's rest. And again, I have to say this. 
This does not mean that God doesn't want us secure in our salvation. He does. I mean, I could quote to you so many verses right now. I have to hold back because my time is somewhat limited, but there are so many verses about God wanting us secure in our salvation. It's not about that. It's not that he doesn't want us secured to know that we're heaven bound. He just doesn't want anybody that darkens the door of a church to be under the spirit of self-delusion or self-deception. And then find out when it's too late that there's nothing they can do about it. I wrote this down in my notes here. How awful to be associated with God's people, but in the end, not being one of them because they did not believe it personally. How awful to be so close to the gates of heaven, but not to enter in. That's why Paul and Peter say, Paul said, test yourselves, examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Peter said, make your calling and election sure. Test yourselves along the way. Don't go around in a morbid state of depression, but check yourself, make sure. So again, why should we be careful to make sure we enter into God's rest? Because we can be found, we can be found to have fallen short of it. And we're, again, we're constantly warned about this in Scripture. Now, I've said this before here in this series, and I will say it again. And I've never read or said these verses ever in my life without a little bit of a shiver down my backside because I'm included in this group. What did Jesus say? Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I do works of power? Didn't I prophesy? And by the way, that word can mean preach sermons. Didn't I do all these things? And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Lots of Christian behaviors, lots of, lots of Christian words, lots of Christian activities, but we never really had a relationship. And that's what he's talking about here. Just, just check ourselves. And I'll give you a self-check here in the last question that we're gonna look at today, okay? So really it means outwardly, everything looks fine. Inwardly, something's amiss. There hasn't been a genuine conversion, okay? Now, that is strange to our ears. You don't hear that very often. Now you go back 100 years, or 150 years, 200 years, you heard it all the time from the most godly, fruit-bearing saints that existed on earth. They would challenge each other, brother, make your calling and election sure. Brother, sister, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. But we don't want to question anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. And if we're saying it rightly, we won't offend them. They'll take it in a loving way. And that's how it should be expressed. Don't be uh, found to have fallen short. Again, God wants us to enjoy security with him in terms of our salvation. It's very important. And the devil's right there chirping in our ear. How could God let a scumbag like you into heaven? Look at all the dirty laundry you're pulling into heaven in the sight of God. Why would God pick someone like you? And we've got to get to the work of the cross and stay there, which is a good thing we're taking communion today because we can remember that. 
So we face uh, an enemy that wants to threaten our security with Christ, and so God wants us to know it. But again, the balance is he doesn't want us under self-deception, and the Bible's very clear that that's a very real possibility. And if we read the Gospels, we see even Jesus um, talking about it. Okay, and I'm not gonna go there because it's a long passage of scripture, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, one through 13, verse 11 says, these things were written to you about these uh, uh, Israelites in the desert that fell short of God's rest as a type or allegory of heaven as examples for you to follow. So you and I don't do it. So that's the first question. But there's a wonderful statement in the midst of this question. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short. But you know what I love about this? Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. And if you may be thinking, you know, I'm not really sure uh, that my uh, conversion experience wasn't just kind of a surface level um, expression of faith in Christ. The promise still stands. We can yield our lives to Christ at any moment of time in our life. And I also want to say this to you also. Um, no one comes too late to enter into the rest of God as long as there's time to do it. Some of you came in here this morning. I would ask for a show of hands, but that would be inappropriate. No, seriously, because some of you have loved ones, dear ones in your family or your life that are not committed to Christ as Lord and Savior. Or you have friends, maybe, that you've known for years and years and years, and you've shared the gospel with them, and they've said, well, maybe another time, or I, I don't really believe in that mumbo-jumbo, and so on and so forth. There's still time. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for your, your friends and acquaintances, because as long as Christ has not returned, and the day of judgment has been set up, there's still time for them to enter his rest. And that's good news, okay? So the first point here is be very careful to uh, enter his rest because we can fall short of it. Let's go to the second question here, okay? I'm wrestling with my, there we go. Second question is what are the causes that keep people, these apparent believers, from entering God's rest? What are the causes? We've seen how important it is to, 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 to heed this warning. Since that promise of entering his rest still stands, let's be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short. None of you, he's writing to a church. But what are the causes? Well, we have two of them. And then we add the third one last week, perseverance. Last week, what keeps us from falling short of genuine conversion is perseverance. Perseverance is the sign of a genuine conversion. But then we get two more in this, and I want us to look through from verses two through nine. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. That's the first one. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said so I declared an oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest and yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world 
For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their, here's the second one, disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day calling it today when a long time later he spoke through David as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, you know what I want to say after reading that passage? Clear as mud. (laughs) This is a tough section of Scripture. But it's clear what the causes of not getting into God's heavenly rest are. And so we'll concentrate on that. Okay, the first one is hearing the gospel without combining it with genuine faith. Hearing the gospel without combining it with genuine faith. What causes people to um, fall short of God's rest? They hear the gospel, but they don't combine it with genuine faith. And therefore, their faith is of no value. Verse 2. This is what the Israelites did, and it cost them the good news of God's eternal rest, illustrated by them not being allowed into Canaan, the land of promise, the promised land. Let me put it as clearly as I can. It's no good to hear and give mental assent or head knowledge only if you and I or someone else doesn't unite that by real repentant faith. It takes more than from the neck on up to be a Christian, okay? Never be guilty, and I'm pointing one at you and four back at me, of trafficking an unfelt truth when it comes to believing in Jesus, okay? That's what happened here. It's no good to hear or give mental assent or head knowledge only if you and I or someone else doesn't unite that by repentant faith. It isn't in reality the awful, awful, awful blunder of self-deception or self-delusion that we read about Jesus saying in Matthew chapter seven. It's this kind of mentality. All I need to do is know the information about Jesus or act in a Christian manner or have a Christian lifestyle. I remember hearing one celebrity say, I'm Christian. And I caught it. I act the best I can in Christian ways, but they weren't a Christian. Okay? And it, it, means I, it can mean I have a Christian belief system, but none of that is true faith, necessarily. And the scriptures tell us this. Okay? One, I just really don't want to pass this passage up. In John chapter 5, verse 35, I really want us to look at this quickly. John 5, 35. And this, this will startle you. You may never have seen this. I don't know, but I saw it once and it blew my mind. Jesus is talking with the religious people, the religious leaders, okay? Um, and he starts in verse 36. I have test, John chapter five. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish 
in which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell on you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now here it is. Here it is. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But, but these are the scriptures that testify about who? M- about me, he says. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Remember this, you evangelical Baptists, okay, that the word of God is never an end in and of itself. The word of God is inspired, infallible, inerrant in its original manuscripts. It is God's word, it's it's God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. But it is not God. It's a means to take us to God. And you can be filled up with all kinds of theology and all kinds of verses and all kinds of Bible knowledge and still be deader than a hammer. Jesus says, if the word of God doesn't lead to me, it hasn't fulfilled its intended purpose. Very important to understand that. For true eternal rest in heaven to be acquired, the knowledge of the gospel must be united by faith in the heart in Jesus Christ, or it's dead. The requirement for genuine salvation is is faith in Christ, not just knowledge about Christ. If we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, we're not saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 say, but if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we're saved. It's a combination of truth and faith, not just truth. I've got education. means nothing in terms of salvation. You may have knowledge. doesn't mean anything in terms of salvation unless it's coupled with faith in Christ. All the churchianity in the world, baptism, Bible reading, church attendance, preaching, teaching is useless to make us Christians. Only trusting, and they're good, those are good things by the way, in and of themselves, but only trusting by faith in the one who died and rose for us saves us. But unlike the Israelites, if you combine the hearing of the gospel with saving faith, you're a true believer. Praise the Lord. That's what being a Christian is all about. Not just about knowing the gospel, but trusting fully in it. What is the cause that keeps people from knowing Christ? They have lots of head knowledge, but their hearts haven't been transformed. And they're shocked about it. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we know that? He says, well, we, we never, uh, you never, you were never baptized into me through the Holy Spirit. I know you had a PhD from the University of Jerusalem. Doesn't matter. Okay? Millions, oh, I, I shouldn't say millions because I really don't know this, but many, Jesus said many, uh, will be surprised on the judgment day. They'll be genuinely surprised that they fell short because they never gave a personal, persevering commitment of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, just remember, the cause that keeps us from entering in 
is not combining the message of the gospel with faith. And I'm not saying you can walk down an aisle or pray a prayer or read a card or anything like that and not be saved. Not saying that could be your salvation experience, but I am saying you have to have believing faith. Even if it's faith as a green of a mustard seed, Jesus said. Let's go to the second one. The second one that keeps us from entering in, okay, or putting it in terms of um, entering God's heavenly rest is disobedience. Now, not, thank goodness, not our kind of disobedience. Anybody here not disobedient once in a while to God? Like the way I phrased that? I knew I wouldn't see a hand. Some of us more often than others. We all disobey, don't we? That's sad. I hate disobeying God. I, sin scares the daylights out of me. I don't want to offend God. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. But I do. It's getting quiet in here. Don't you? Yeah, if you can't say amen, say ouch, okay? Haven't used that one yet. Um, disobedience. Okay, disobedience to God, which begs the question to me anyway is, what kind of disobedience? Because if getting into heaven, the, 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 the eternal rest of God is based on me not being disobedient, I'm toast. I am toast. I'll be disobedient before I get home today to God. I'll, have, I'll cop an attitude. I'll say something, think something, act in some way that violates the holy character of God. But that doesn't make me an unbeliever. Okay, I'll, I'll put it this way. There's a difference between running into sin and stubbing your toe on sin. How's that? Every Christian stubs their toe on sin, but what do you do if you're a Christian? You sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you find a little private place if, as best as you can and say, Heavenly Father, I am so sorry for saying that. I am so sorry for thinking, acting that way. Forgive me, and God says, under the blood, let's keep going. But that's different than what the Israelites were doing. You read Exodus, Ugh. You read Numbers, Ugh, you read Deuteronomy, and the Israelites had a, had a love affair with perpetual, unrepentant, godless sin. They ran into sin, and they didn't turn back until God just thrashed them. It's amazing how, how unrepentant so many of the Israelites were. I mean, Moses didn't even get down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone before they were cavorting around down there. So the, the sins that we're talking about, and I'm gonna just give a little grocery list, uh, were, and I guess it's a, a, a grocery list in general. And if, by the way, in, in love, if these characterize you or me, we ought to just look inwardly and, and, and really see whether they're gonna keep us out of heaven, okay? And I'm gonna put it in a general way and get more specific. The person who loves sin more than God is probably not a believer. 
Didn't mean we never fall. You never hear me say that. But we just love sin more than we love God. And when we commit it, we just don't, we, it just it's, it doesn't concern us. Oh, well, nobody's perfect. But the sins of the Israelites, if I may just give that a little gross list, was the sin of unbelief. The sin of persistent, willful, unrepentant, moral, and sexual sin. The, the um, hard-hearted rebellion against the things of God. Hard-hearted and hard, a hard-hearted independent spirit and idolatry. And you know what idolatry, don't say, oh good, that's an Old Testament word. Idolatry simply means replacing the authority of God with a humanly devised substitute. Oops. I like this better than I like God or I'm pursuing this more than I'm pursuing God. That's disobedience. So you add all three. A lack of perseverance, okay? Lack of perseverance keeps us from entering in. Okay, what was the second one? Not combining faith with knowledge or belief. And then the third one, unrepentant disobedience. Okay, those are the causes. Now let's finish up with this question. Um, how can we be careful to enter into God's rest? And if I had a scads of time, which I don't, I could make a really good case that the following four things that you're gonna hear should be a lifetime occupation for Christians. Okay, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna speed through them, so, you know, here we go. Number one, if we're gonna enter into God's rest and not fall short, our salvation must be by faith and not by works. Christianity is not a merit-based system. Biblical Christianity is different from all other world religions is that it's not based on our works or merits. Every one other one is, including the pseudo-Christian cults like Mormonism, JWs, and all kinds of other ones. They're all based, at least partially, on our human effort. But I want you to go to these last four verses, okay? Verse 10 through 13. Uh, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. You gotta be at rest from your own works to get in, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces, penetrates rather, going on memory here, it penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything that is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so first of all, we're told that if we want to be careful into God, to get into God's rest and not fall short of it, nothing adds to faith when it comes to salvation on our part. Repentance, faith, that's it. Okay? Secondly, And it sounds contradictory, but if we're going to be careful to enter into God's rest and not fall short, we need to make every effort to enter into that rest. 
See, you just told me we can't do anything to enter and rest. Now you're telling me we gotta make every effort. Well, look at verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will, fall, will fail by following their, their, the Israelites' example of disobedience. What does this mean? The word means to strive, to be in earnest, to concentrate one's energies in the achievement of something. There is no contradiction between this and verse 10. It's not that we can work our way into salvation, but here it is. We must diligently seek to enter God's rest by faith, not hesitating in fully trusting Christ, committing ourselves to Christ, and persevering until the end in our relationship with Christ. Being careful to avoid falling back to our previous life before Christ because of problems, persecutions, or pain. I want to read you the words of Jesus. These are really, really, again, powerful to me. And we don't think of them very often, but I think it applies in this area in Matthew chapter 13. I don't even know if I gave this to the guys that put this on the screen, but let me read chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Does that happen to be up there? Oh, good. Uh, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and brought that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of the great value, he went away. And he sold everything he had, and he bought it. He went after it. And nothing got in his way or her way. That is making every effort to enter into the rest. Not slacking off. It's got to be by faith, not works. But we make every effort to keep our faith going in Christ. These Jewish forefathers in the desert failed to display that quality. And they failed to enter into the promised land. Thirdly, we can be careful to enter into God's rest by studying and staying in the word of God. Now, you know what's so surprising about preaching the Bible and studying the Bible is verses appear that you've known all your, lot of your Christian life that are completely taken out of context until you get the context. Because if you look at that little word, gotta get back to Hebrews here, that little word for at the beginning of chapter, or of verse uh, 13, for, for the word of God. And, and pastors are the worst violators of this. We start preaching whole sermons on this verse on the importance of the word of God. And we rip it out of context. And they're usually right in terms of what they mean, but this is in the context of the unbelief of the Israelites in the desert that didn't enter in. And he's saying, use the word of God to keep yourself honest. That's the meaning here. Not just the great attributes of the word of God, but getting into the word of God so you're kept honest your whole life. Let the word of God deal with you on a regular basis and you won't end up like those uh, Jews in the desert that didn't get in. Does that make sense? I love the word of God because it deals with me. I like to be dealt with. Okay, I guess that's when I turn on one of those kind of limp-wristed, watered-down, sugar-coated, namby-pamby preachers on TV. I just have to turn the station. I want to be dealt with by the Word of God. 
I want to be encouraged by the word of God, but I want to be kept honest about myself. And it's saying here that, that the word of God crushes self-deception. It crushes self-delusion. It reveals our true condition. And we need that. So get into the word of God. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's penetrating. It's so penetrating that it can, it can divide uh, the immaterial part of us, our conscience. It's, it, it can penetrate our joints and our marrow. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart so it doesn't harden, so we don't deceive ourselves about ourselves. It can penetrate the innermost part of our, of our hearts. Now, the word of God is comforting and it's, it, it's so wonderful the way it comforts us and gets us through tough times. I got a whole list of scriptures back on my little coffee table devotional area at home that when life gets tough and I'm, I'm worried and anxious about things, I just pray through these and they're the most comforting verses ever. But the word of God also serves to check us and to see if what we're doing is godly, to make sure our belief is real, to make sure we're growing. You know the word here, judge, if you look at verse, or chapter, uh, verse 13, it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what that word is? It's the Greek word kriditas. Can you guess what English word we get from that? Huh? Critic. The word of God, kriditas, is our critic. It's not that it criticizes us and runs us down. It critic, it's our critic for how we think and live and behave. And so when we open it up, it, it, it makes us be honest, okay? It opens us up to our real motives, our real thoughts, our real spiritual condition. So how can we heed the warning to be careful to enter into God's rest and not fall short? Well, make every... Uh, Enter only by faith. Make every effort to enter that rest by faith your whole life. Persevere. Study the word of God. And finally, let the God of the word study you. It's not just good enough to study the word of God to not, to not fall short. We gotta let the God of the word study us. And that comes to verse 13. Um, nothing in heaven, and maybe we should skip this one. What do you say? Just have a quick amen. Let's get out of here before it starts to hurt. Oh, uh, maybe not, okay. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I gotta use another Kleinism. If you can't say amen, say ouch. I guess I did that earlier. Remember, God is all-knowing. If we remember that God is all-knowing, all-comforting, but all-knowing, um, and that he understands and is aware of every single detail of our thoughts and deeds and personality and beliefs and motives. He fully and completely knows all of them and our pain. Then we will enter into God's rest because we'll be honest to him. Do you know that every Christian now and again becomes a temporary atheist? Did you know that? I can see the gears in your mind running right now. Why do we, how do we become a temporary atheist? By choosing to sin or rebel or do something that's not of God. Because you gotta have to push God out of it to do what you want. And then when the Holy Spirit begins 
that sandpaper job on your heart, right? You go, oh, yeah, God, I'm sorry. And then the next time, oh, God, go over there so I can do it and think this. And come, so you have to kind of forget that God, it's all there in front of God. Else we wouldn't do it. Okay, so if we want to be godly Christians or we want to make sure that we're going to not fall short but be careful to enter in, we have to know that God has infinite supernatural eyes and we will give an account of what we do in this life to him. 2 Corinthians 5.10. You know, it's interesting. This is an ancient word that has several meanings, but how many of you guys ever wrestled in high school? One... To several guys wrestled. This was the, the, uh, uh, a word for a wrestling hold where you, I don't think they'd allow it today in high school, but where you grab the guy's throat and choke him. <laughs> and you have eyeball to eyeball contact. That's the word. The other word is in court, a criminal trial, where what they would do is they'd fasten an a- apparatus onto the neck of the uh, the one that was being accused, and they would put a razor-sharp dagger under his chin and lift his eyes. So if he went down, that thing would go right up through his, whatever that thing is, and up through your, whatever that thing is, and up through into your brain. <laughs> Palate, or I don't know what it is. And so they'd be like this. Eyeball to the prosecutor. He's saying everything's open to God. Now, that's a comforter because my pain and my problems are open to God, but it's a convictor because if I'm trying to fool God, he ain't buying it. If I'm trying to hide an unregenerate heart, he ain't buying it. And so those are the things that keep us um, from falling short, okay? And that's what we have, to, we have to practice. Well, let me finish with this quote, Time to Take Communion. Uh, this is by S.J. Cole, and he's, it's a w- good way to c- uh, conclude. And I say this, hopefully, with really a lot of love in my heart. I hope this comes off really loving. It is not enough to grow up in the church and have a general belief in God and in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard the gospel all your life, and intellectually, you believe in Jesus, and that he died for your sins, but intellectual belief is not enough. Saving faith trusts personally in the shed blood of Jesus as the only payment for my sins. Saving faith believes that God will be gracious to me in the judgment because my sins are covered by Jesus' blood and that his righteousness has been imputed to me according to God's promise. Make sure that your hope of heaven is not based on your parents' faith or your friends' faith or your Bible school education faith, or your seminary faith, or your position faith. Okay? Make sure it's not based on that. Make sure it's not based on the fact that you hang out with Christians in a church building. See your need as a sinner before God and come personally to the cross in faith to receive God's mercy. And then persevere from then on until he returns. Can I get an amen?